If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Augustine once said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. You see, many of us put off things that we ought to do. If we were to look over this past year, there are many things that we told ourselves and others that we would get done, and as we're nearing the end of this year, we didn't finish up. That project in the basement that I told my wife we were going to get done months ago is still undone. That task that you may have brought up that you were going to get done here at the church is still not completed. We all have things that we've said we were going to do and unfortunately didn't follow through on. Is that not true? You see, this morning we're going to be looking at a man named Felix and his procrastination when it came to dealing with the Apostle Paul. We're going to be looking at three things specifically in this text in chapter 24. Number one, the accusation, verses 1 through 9. Number two, the defense, verses 10 through 21. And number three, the procrastination, verses 22 through 27. Now, just as a way of review, last time we were in the book of Acts, we covered Paul's standing before the Jewish religious rulers and his shrewd response, which caused the Pharisees to back him as a Pharisee against the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. We mentioned also how Paul, having learned this from Jesus and other apostles, approached people differently based on their knowledge of the Word of God. Those that were very familiar, Paul dealt with them a certain way compared to those that were relatively ignorant of the Word of God. In fact, what's interesting is we discussed the plot to kill Paul that was revealed to him, and Paul was safely delivered to Felix, who would now oversee his day in court, if you will. Now, Paul stays there with Felix for a while, and we're going to be looking at number one, the accusation, verses one through nine. Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we might enjoy, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. By the way, Paul had already been examined multiple times at this point. He'd been examined by the Romans and the Jewish rulers themselves and transferred here to Felix by the Roman commander, 
who cared for Paul's safety after realizing that there was a plot for Paul's life. Paul gets to stay here for just a short time and waits when Ananias arrives with his posse, if you will, to finish business, to finish the unfinished business that he had with his cohorts. What is interesting is what the Romans now think of the Apostle Paul is very different than what they started with. At this point, they don't see Paul as the threat that the Jews are proclaiming him to be. In fact, they're seeing that this is an over-the-top response by the Jewish community because they viewed Paul as some kind of a threat while the Romans are saying, listen, this man has done nothing that we see deserves him to be guilty of any crimes. Paul here is placed under Felix's rule And Felix is to decide what's to happen to him as the Jews come back to plead their case. Paul, by the way, was actually staying at a much better place for rest than he was back in the prison. In fact, he was staying at Herod's Praetorium, which is more like a palace, rather than just a mere prison that he was staying at before. By the way, Paul's time in custody provided him an opportunity for more ministry. You see, Paul never wasted the opportunities God gave him. Do you find difficulties in your life to take those opportunities that God gives you to share the gospel that are available to you many times in the most difficult times of life? You see, maybe you've experienced a financial loss. Maybe you've lost a close friend or a loved one. But have you found the opportunity to share the gospel in that heartache? You see, many times those are the areas that God can work mightily. Through the tragedies in our lives and others, God provides a connection. Usually when we're going through a difficult season, unfortunately we are so self-absorbed that we lose the opportunity God has waiting for us. We're ready to cry a pity party before seeing the obvious opportunity that we have to minister to others as well. One of the greatest blessings is the opportunity to share the gospel with others that are grieving with us. You see, church, if we have hope in Christ, we don't sorrow like the rest of the world. When we have those difficulties come up in our lives, we are not to respond in exactly the same way as they do. We have a hope waiting us, whereas they don't. And that gives us the perfect opportunity to be able to share Christ with them. Those are the moments when the soil is many times the softest. You see, five days pass and Ananias shows up with his official prosecution lawyer, or attorney, if you will. Tortullus, who brings the charges against Paul. Now, I want you to notice the strategy of the prosecution. This is what's amazing about Scripture. Uh, People say Scripture is outdating. It doesn't have any practical implication for today. It has plenty of practical implication for today. Number one, here's what they do. Their first part of the strategy is buttering up the judge by showing him respect. You've kept things so peaceful, Felix. You've worked with us in the past. We are so grateful for you. That's ultimately what they're saying. By the way, many of them did not like Felix. So this is a fraudulent statement to begin with. You ever have somebody come up to you that really wanted to make you feel good, but you kind of were like, man, that's disingenuous. That's what's going on here. These are people that are realizing, hey, you know what? We need to set the tone right. It's 
probably a good idea to start with something that tells them that we appreciate him. Probably a better way to approach him than the way others approach you and me. I mean, in fact, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but this is, would probably be the wrong approach to Felix. Look, Felix, you know better than to leave this guy to himself and to do the things that he's doing. You should see through Paul. Probably a better approach would be, Felix, you're an amazing guy. We've had a great relationship with you. We don't want to bore you with all the details, which is where they go here very soon, rather than accusing Felix of not knowing any better. Have you ever had somebody come to you about somebody else, and their first statement to you is really kind of insulting your intelligence? Like, I can't believe you didn't see that in that person. Wait a second. That's probably not going to be the best approach if someone comes to me and says, hey, you know what, Pastor Roman, I need you to see what's going on here. This is a situation that you should be aware of, and it's troubling. And if their first approach to me was, I can't believe you've never seen this, Pastor Roman. These people are in the church, they're doing this. Why aren't you not seeing this? There's a proper way to do things and an improper way to do this. And they realize that the better way is essentially showing respect to Felix, even if there are some differences. What's amazing, too, is that they don't belittle Felix's abilities, right? Rather, than they, they prop them up. Look, we know you're a wise man. You're going to be able to see this. So they, get, they jump right into getting to the point. We don't want to bore you with the details, Felix, but this man, he causes trouble. He starts riots. He's a cult leader with a following. He's violating the sanctity of the temple. In fact, that's why we arrested him. He's a dangerous man, Felix. Now, mind you, they never get into the specifics, do they? They throw out all these accusations without getting into the particulars. They're just general accusations without particulars. Unfortunately, so many when presenting an argument or a case against someone They don't really present all the facts, do they? In fact, what's sad is that many people will present an argument or case against somebody by throwing things out there that have nothing to do with this current situation. You know, they're a bad person. You should, trust, you should not trust them because when they were a teenager, they lied about something. Oh, wait a second. Who's lied as a teenager? I think we all have, right? I don't think that's a valid argument if you're going to bring up something 20 years later. And unfortunately, this is the way people are. They bring something up that has nothing to do with the accusation currently. Look, this is sound advice. When presenting something about somebody and not dealing with the details, you're causing a very partial view of that person. You need to have all the facts. I need to have all the facts. What they also did is they made sure that others could back up their arguments. So they had others backing up their position. One of the key points in accusation for the Jews was that there were other witnesses that needed to confirm or deny the accusation. They could not make that statement with just one person. 
Unfortunately, as we find in the trial of Christ as well, it didn't stop false witnesses perverting justice and providing false testimony. In fact, these men were falsely accusing Paul of inciting violence, being a leader of a cult and profaning the temple. And in their minds, they were fully convinced that, they, that he had done those things, even though those were false accusations. Have you ever been convinced of something in someone's life that was actually incorrect? Have you ever been convinced about an accusation regarding someone else that later on you went, that wasn't really true. I didn't have all the facts. I didn't have all the data. I misjudged that person. Oh, don't tell me that's never happened to you. I've misjudged people plenty in my life. As good as my indications are many times of who people are, I'm wrong sometimes. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is when we have a partial view that's given to us by somebody else that's offended or hurt by someone else, we take on that offense many times without checking the facts. All of these things were false accusations, even though they provided more witnesses. In fact, if they were around today, they would have probably run a special on the dangers of the Apostle Paul. I tend to humor myself seeing what's going on in the political landscape today, and I wonder, imagine Paul with how they're arguing insurrection right now. I'm sorry. My brain goes there. So what's Paul to do? Just to keep quiet, let it go? Let go and let God, Paul. Now he provides a defense. Number two, the defense, verses 10 through 21. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, 
I am being judged by you this day. You see, Paul's given a chance to defend himself, and he provides a solid defense that's well thought out. What does he start with? He starts by showing honor and distinction to the judge as well. Tells him that he'll be glad to present his case before him. And Paul gets right to the facts. He mentions, I was just at the temple recently, no more than 12 days ago. And I didn't argue with anyone, nor did I intend to start a riot in the temple or even in the streets or the synagogue. They can't prove any of the things that they've accused me of. Essentially, it is so recent that Paul says, you can ask and verify with others if I've done any of the things they're accusing me of. Think of it this way. If something recently happened, you and I probably would have a better recollection of it than if it happened years ago. Yes or no? If something happened this past week, you'd probably remember it a lot better than something that happened last year. Paul also clears up misunderstanding. Paul admits to being a part of the way, the cult that he's being accused of being a ringleader of. And he expands to point out that Christianity is the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish faith. But the point of the resurrection is one that motivates him to have a clear conscience, because there is a resurrection for both the just and the unjust. You see, the resurrection, church, should be a motivation for all of us to live a clean, holy life before God. That should be the motivation for us. Unfortunately, for many disciples of Jesus, there's no reverence or fear of what awaits when we pass from this life. You see, Paul maintained this balance that so many of us neglect to do. We've abused grace to the point of assuming there's nothing to be concerned of since we have been saved from the wrath to come. It's a very unbiblical view that we hold. Nothing could be further from the truth, church. In light of the resurrection, you ought to fear God. Because there's still a holy trembling that will occur before him. There is still a moment we have to see Christ face to face and give an account. To take that lightly is disregarding all of Scripture. The crime summarized here lies in the resurrection and Paul's outcry regarding his position. Wearsby points out, do we detect a bit of holy sarcasm in Paul's closing statement? We might paraphrase it, if I have done anything evil, it is probably this. I reminded the Jewish council of our great Jewish doctrine of the resurrection. When falsely accused, stick to what matters most. For Paul, it was his stance on the resurrection. Paul wasn't about defending his character as much as he was making sure that he made himself clear on the resurrection. 
Now, did Paul stir the pot by what he did? Oh, sure he did. Remember, he had the Sadducees and the Pharisees divided over this. His ultimate goal, though, was to still make the gospel known to those around him. He wanted the gospel to be known to his brethren, the Jews, not just to be a troublemaker and a pot stirrer. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, they're very politically minded more than gospel minded, so they want to just stir the pot and controversy all the time. If you want me to be that kind of pastor, I won't be. There's a lot of pastors that like to be cocky and present all sorts of crazy fanfare online. We are called to share the gospel, and we should be known for the gospel, not just our politics. And when churches start saying things like, let's go Brandon in their church, that's a mockery of what God's called us to be. It's a mockery. We need to ask ourselves, church, why do we need to keep our Christian school open? I think sometimes we need to do some real soul-searching behind why we do what we do. Is it just so we can get our children through 12th grade? So we can just protect them from outside influence? So it's better for them, more sheltered here? Is it just so we can give them a good education? Now, all these things are important. I, I completely agree that it's good to make sure that our children are protected. I think it's great that our children get a good education. But the ultimate should be that we want the gospel to reach our children in our community. After all, why do we name it Grace Academy? Listen, church, a Christian school without the gospel damns to hell. I don't care how good the education is. These are serious things we need to think through. Church, why do we feel uncomfortable around certain people in the church? These are things, i got to tell you, tear me up sometimes when I think through them. Why do certain people make me uncomfortable? Why is it that around that person I just feel uncomfortable? Others I'm a lot more comfortable with. Do they remind us of our own rebellion? You know, I find it fascinating that the very people we can't stand many times in the church are a reflection of us years ago. They're just as miserable as we were. And instead of being gracious, seeing them through the eyes of Christ, we see them as scum. We ought not be around them. Have we elevated ourselves to a status that is lacking grace, church? Have we forgotten our own depravity? You still have that same wicked heart that God has rescued. You still have that sin nature in you that that other brother or sister has as well. Let's not pretend that glorification's already happened to you. It hasn't. You're still in the process of sanctification. 
And just because you're two steps ahead doesn't mean you can't fall back five more tomorrow. Look, I know so many of us want to have the perfect house with the perfect spouse raising the perfect kids while going to the perfect church. Can I tell you, on this side of eternity, that none of that exists? We're all flawed. From our spouse to our children to our church to your pastor, we're all flawed. If you're a faithful disciple of Christ, you need to remember where you came from, believer. You need to stop getting so frustrated with other Christians and their struggles and you need to worry about yourself. We're too easily distracted by what our families don't do right. In fact, we have many times our Thanksgiving prayers are very much pharisaical. If you were to literally break apart some of our prayers sometimes where we're thanking God for things, we are just like the Pharisee looking at the publican. God, I thank you that you've blessed me with everything and how I love you so much and I love you more than everybody else around me. Everybody else doesn't care as much as I do. Such hypocrites. Listen, I think many of us have forgotten how much we still struggle with sin internally. The only difference is it's not so publicly known. Let's be honest, there's still sin that God is dealing with in our hearts, is he not? You probably wouldn't want everyone to know it either. What's amazing here is that after hearing from the Sanhedrin and the Apostle, you think Felix has a closed case. He knows exactly what he needs to do. He's going to come out with a solid judgment, right? Nope. Just like many politicians that don't like making the tough calls, Felix just decides to put it off. Number three, the procrastination. Verses 22 through 27. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Perchius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Listen, at this point, Felix had a much better understanding of Christianity. He understood where Paul was coming from. He knew that Paul was innocent. 
But he decides to put off this decision and tells the others that he'll wait for the report from Lysias, a third party, if you will, to make the final determination with the case. The only problem with that, he's already received the report from the commander. He already knows what they think. Remember, when Paul was delivered, there was a letter addressed in regards to what Paul had done. There was no reason for him to make that statement. But as many politicians, even today, put off the major decisions they need to make, and they try to be pleasing to both sides of an argument every time. Felix was already told by the commander that he found Paul to be innocent. This was just a delay tactic on his part. Now, what is interesting is Felix ends up treating Paul by giving him some freedom to spend time with friends that come to visit him. So he gives him a little freedom there. Both Felix and his wife, Drusilla, call Paul in to talk about his faith, as it's something to, be, to have interested them somewhat. It's the typical, that's interesting, tell me more about your faith, right? Let me hear some more about what you really believe, Paul. The topics that were discussed were righteousness, self-control, and judgment. But what's amazing, after hearing Paul, Felix actually is frightened and doesn't want to hear from him anymore. Got a little convicted. Happens to many in the world. When someone dares share with them the fact that there's judgment awaiting, well, I don't want to hear that. God is love. I don't want to hear any of this thing about judgment. Give me the stuff I want to hear. It's all about love, 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 right? Like that's our culture. Which is why we defend love in any way we want to define it. What's amazing is that in some way Paul frightened him. In fact, Felix married Drusilla, who was actually a daughter of Herod Agrippa, the one who put the apostle James to death. And he also imprisoned Peter. But what's interesting is when Felix sends Paul away, he tells him, I'll talk to you when it's more convenient. When it's more convenient for me to talk to you, I'll call you back. Right now is not the right time to have this discussion. How many of us have done this when we've been convicted by something that God's word has clearly revealed to us? I'm going to get to this when it's a little more convenient. A little too convicted by the message this morning. I'll deal with this later on. It's a little too much right now, Pastor Roman. A little too much. I know others in the church have a problem like that. Like me. Leave me alone. When God has brought something in our lives to convict us over sin that we don't readily want to admit to, there's this false humility we masquerade in, which is really pride. And our response is many times, I'll get to it when I have time. 
It's one of the most dangerous things when it comes to our walk with God. Putting off the things that he's called us to do in his word. It's more important than you not doing the oil change, as important as that is. It's more important than that project you were going to do at home that you've delayed for a while. The more severe consequences. Procrastination is something we can easily get away with in school when we were growing up, right? How many of us would type the paper the night before? Hurry up. Twelve pages. Let's do it. Knock it out. Some of us were better than others at that. Sometimes those projects at home, we can put those off. Even those things at our jobs, we have a longer timeline, if you will. But when it comes to our spiritual walk, it's a dangerous situation to put off what God has called us to do today. Putting off that conversation we ought to have with our children about their walk with God for a more convenient time is dangerous, parents. Very destructive. You see, so many of us try to find a time to relax. But even in the rest, we don't want to give God the glory. We think we've deserved what we have. We still don't want to bask in the glory of God. We're about ourselves rather than His mission. So many of us don't know how to apply simple passages of Scripture that say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Listen, there are things we ought not to put off, and there are things we ought to enjoy as well. And unfortunately, some of us, because we have been wired this way, we figure because we've not gotten certain things done, we can't enjoy anything God's given us. And that's the wrong extreme to jump to. God blesses his children in spite of their deficiencies. A simple get-together with family and friends can be done for God's glory, church, and for our enjoyment. Even if you didn't get to everything that you probably should have as a parent with your children. I hope you're understanding what I'm saying here. There needs to be a balance, church. Some of us are very morbid in our thoughts, right? We're always thinking death, death, death every day. Others are like fun, fun, fun. You can't do either extreme. It's dangerous. Some of us have taken the Christian life too seriously. We don't know how to enjoy the blessing of time with family and friends. We put this off for the more spiritual things like scripture reading and prayer. But all it becomes is a judgment session of everyone else that's having fun and enjoying time together. I've always been stunned by my own heart's response sometimes when others are enjoying time together. And I'm going, it's wrong to have that much fun. And it makes you wonder, how is that spiritual in any way?
We're somehow more holy because others are having fun and we don't want to have fun now. We're going to watch you have fun and bitterness and pride and be more holy somehow. Are we really seeing ourselves for what it is many times? Walking closer to God should not make you more of a crank. And yet it does in many churches. Some of the people in churches are the most miserable. They're going around condemning everyone else for not reading their Bibles while they are miserable themselves. And they're reading the Bible like a Pharisee without any application of themselves. But I read the Bible. It condemned you. Did you not see it? Were you too busy looking at everybody else's flaws? How many of us have ever read the Bible to try to prove somebody else wrong? Anybody ever do that before? Try to show off? Try to prove that we know better than someone else? Well, I'll show my family member they don't know the Bible. Concordance, drinking. Goodness. What have we become? Walking closer to God should not make you envy others more. It should break your heart when you see people that are in sin. Walking closer to God should be a refresher on grace and mercy. While keeping a balance on holiness and judgment. It's a balancing act, church. You've got to be careful with the extremes. You see, sending Paul away, Felix was hoping to still be bribed. He figured Paul, with his connections, could give him a good price. A good payment for his freedom. No, no, Paul, I, I don't know if I can make this happen. Paul, I don't know. There's a price, right? Felix had a price. There were ulterior motives attached to the decision that Felix made. Up until his removal from the position where we even see that he wanted to do the Jews a favor by keeping Paul imprisoned. He wanted to make sure the Jews were happy with him. He didn't want to stir the pot with them, even though he knew Paul was innocent. Whatever is most convenient for me is what I'm going to do. You see, Felix tried to make everyone happy. He's one of those. Something so many of us try to do, and it's frankly impossible. You cannot make everyone happy. How many of you have noticed that just this last week when it came to Thanksgiving? You can't make everybody happy at all times. Everybody's going to have their preference of what they want. I don't really want that. Yeah, yeah, sure, give me that drink instead. You don't have water? We all have different things that we want. And it's impossible to please everyone. You don't like doing something others like doing? 
Listen, church member, you don't have to rain on their parade if it's not sinful. So they like snowboarding and you don't. Let them. Well, I like to tend the garden. I'm much better. What? Yet this is how we act. We're like pathetic children, still as adults, thinking that what we like doing is way better than others. Well, you know, they sent their kid to Disney World. I'm not doing that. What's wrong with that? If they have the means to be able to do so, let them do that. Why are you being envious? And the way we actually reinterpret this in our minds many times, the things that we don't get to do that others do, what we tend to do is try to convince ourselves that we really didn't want to do them. Do we not do that? I can't afford to do something somebody else is doing, so I'm going to convince myself I really didn't plan on doing it anyways. That's how our minds work. We're really deceiving our own selves and thinking that everybody else is to blame for our own misery. If I didn't see that Facebook post, I wouldn't have gone off on this whole conversation. Well, maybe shut off Facebook. That might be a good place to start. Delete the account. Put it on pause for 60 days. Maybe your life will improve. You like doing something others do. Enjoy it with them for the glory of God. It's one of the greatest things that I think the church needs to do more of. If you like board games, enjoy board games with other Christians. There's nothing wrong with that to the glory of God. Now, if you don't like them, don't condemn those of us that do. Vice versa. If I think you're boring because you don't want to play board games, I'm not going to condemn you over it. I'm sure you have other things that you do for fun. Stare at the wall at home. I don't know. You see, many disciples fall into two extremes when it comes to their Christian life. Number one, the ultra-devoted, no-fun Christian. They care about the things of God to the point of thinking having fun is almost sinful. Because God has called us to read the Bible and pray. Always, every day. Anyone that's having fun around me doesn't love God as much as I do. That's the first extreme of Christians. And the second extreme of the Christian life is the ultra-relaxed, always-fun Christian. They dwell so much on the freedom found in Christ that they forget that they are a sinner who needs to repent still. They consider Scripture and prayer to be optional, which stunts their growth. They look down at those who devote themselves to Scripture and prayer themselves. Ultimately, those people are taking it too seriously. Essentially, both groups are guilty of what they accuse the other of. Being too proud to admit their own flaws. Listen, church, we need to be careful that we do not neglect the reading of Scripture and prayer. But as Scripture clearly spells out for us, that we are given many things in this life to richly enjoy. And we ought to enjoy them. We need to be able to do both. 
We need to take our faith seriously and enjoy the things that God has given to us. I know for some people it's stunning that certain preachers like watching football games. It shouldn't shock you. And for others, it's stunning that a person legitimately knows, hey, they are always a fun-loving Christian, but they really do take this Bible reading program seriously. That shouldn't shock you. It's not either or, it's both. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy being in His Word. Enjoy coming to Him in prayer. So my conclusion to message this morning is, where are you procrastinating? Where are you procrastinating? Because we all put off things. We all do. Have you put off the time you should have spent in the Word of God and in prayer? Is that one of those, we'll get to it tomorrow, you keep telling your children we'll read the Bible tomorrow and you didn't do it the last three days? Are you waiting for a more convenient time? Look, we're very similar to Felix. Let's just be honest here. We all want the more convenient time to do things for God. If we're all waiting for the convenient time, we won't do many of the things God has called us to. Because it's not always convenient. It takes sacrifice to serve God. It's not a matter of convenience. Have you found yourself longing for more intimate relationships with others but you're not willing to step out and connect yourself. You're the type of person that wants somebody else to connect with you, but you're not willing to step out and connect with others. Has God been dealing with you personally about a struggle with sin, and you've put off dealing with it, hoping it goes away on its own? Many of us have the method of dealing with sin by trying to ignore it. There's one thing that you should not put off, is dealing with sin today. That is something you cannot procrastinate on. And unfortunately, so many put off what God convicts them of today and think that they'll be able to just take care of it tomorrow on its own. Doesn't work that way, church. Have you been waiting for everything to be perfect to do what God's already called you to? Look, if you're looking for the perfect opportunity, you many times will never find it. Because then you have to define the word perfect. And you know what most of us do when we define the word perfect? It's imperfect. We all have different definitions. Listen, church, delayed obedience is still disobedience. Doesn't matter how you want to slice it. What would you do different about this week if you didn't put off what you did regarding your discipleship? Are there certain things that you said you're going to get to this last week and you just didn't do it with the holiday season? You almost felt like giving yourself a break and connecting with God was what you should have done. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I didn't say that you shouldn't have spent time with family. I didn't say that you shouldn't have enjoyed the company of others. What I did say is, did you neglect God at the expense of other things? 
And what ends up happening many times in the busyness of the holiday season, we neglect the thing that matters most. Our time with God. How grateful were you for the gospel message just this past week? I think we had many things that we were thankful for this last week. Were you grateful for the gospel message? Were you grateful for what Jesus has done on your behalf? How eager were you to make Christ known to those around you? Listen, maybe you've put off the time God wanted you to spend enjoying the company of family and friends. Maybe you've really jumped to the extreme on this. And you've just neglected to spend quality time with those around you. I've been there many times. Worked really hard on a sermon, worked really hard here at the church, behind the scenes, and neglected to spend quality time with my family. And I'm telling you, church, that is a balancing act we all need to master. We need to be able to serve Christ. We ought to be in his word. We ought to be in prayer. But we also need to make sure we're spending the time that God's given us with those around us. It's not one or the other. It's both. Maybe your Christian life is out of balance. Instead of seeing others and seeing their joy, people see you as miserable. Instead of seeing the joy that you see in others in your own life, people see you as a miserable person. Instead of grace, they see judgment from you and me. Instead of holiness, they see open sin and rebellion against God. There's no reason any disciple of Christ should put off doing what the Master requires of him today. 